Welcome or welcome back to Lift You Up Inspiring Health Stories. I'm your host, Tamika Bickham. I am the founder and chief storyteller of TV Media Group, but for the purpose of this podcast, I am your health and happiness matchmaker. Now, before I introduce you to today's guest, you know what I'm going to ask you to do if you haven't done it already. Hit subscribe on YouTube, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect with you. Now today you are going to meet someone who I have grown to know and really love and appreciate over the last few years, Haley Moss. She is openly autistic and she's talking about her diagnosis at the age of three, what it was like growing up all the way through becoming the first openly autistic lawyer sworn into the Florida bar and what she's doing now. Our physical, mental, and emotional health is not just a want. It is a need for happy lives and prosperous businesses. Lift You Up is the podcast where we share inspiring health stories from business owners who are fulfilling their purpose to live their healthiest lives and helping you do the same. From former TV reporter to marketing entrepreneur and content creator, I care about sharing stories that matter and stories that connect us. I'm your host, Tamika Bickham, your health and wellness matchmaker. I am so excited to have Haley Moss on the show today. We met three or four years ago now, and we've known each other for some time and become friends. And she is truly a person to know, a person to watch. She is, well, I'm going to let her tell you, but I know her through the folks at University of Miami, Nova Southeastern University Center for Autism and Related Disabilities, where we worked together there. And Haley ended up graduating from University of Miami Law. She was the commencement speaker and then ended up being the um, first openly autistic attorney sworn into the Florida bar in the state of Florida. Am I getting that all right? Like I know it was a mouthful and I'm like, I got to get through it. (laughs) But that's how I know Haley. Welcome. Thank you. And I think you nailed it. You got me pretty well summed (laughs) up in that quick snippet. So thank you. You're welcome. Author, speaker, there's so many other things on the list, but um, thanks for being here. I wear a lot of different hats in a day. You do. So why don't you tell us about you? Tell us about all your different hats and then we'll dive back into your your story a little bit more. (laughs) I am an attorney. I am an author. I am an artist. I am an advocate and I am autistic. So all of those things play together. I'm very proud that once upon a time when I was currently practicing, I was working in healthcare and international law. I really do love the law. And right now I kind of am pivoting a little bit towards things that I think are also super interesting and fun and trying to empower as many people as possible. I am an author, so I've written two books and I've also written journalism and other pieces for places like the Washington Post, Teen Vogue, Fast Company, kind of have the laundry list of fun places that I've gotten to write for. And I also still do academic research because I think policy and legislation related to the law and the Americans with Disabilities Act is super interesting. It's also like a very nerdy hobby of mine at this point. (laughs) I love to draw and paint and I love getting to use my voice to help amplify other voices and bring attention to disability rights issues and neurodiversity and autism acceptance and changing that conversation for the better. Is that where you say things are focused or where you're focusing right now as far as as raising awareness? I feel like raising awareness is kind of a misnomer. So I think that everybody's aware, right? Like 
if you see the statistics on autism, it's like one in 54 kids. I think it's like 2 million or something adults at this point based on CDC estimates, something very high. That's like, of course, you probably know somebody who's autistic at this point. And one in four Americans has a disability. So chances are, you know, someone. So I think we're kind of past that awareness point. It's more of getting to that cultural confidence place where we not only understand people with disabilities and autistic people and other neurodiverse populations, but that we know how to interact with them, that we're more empathetic, that we're more understanding and are also being mindful about inclusion. How do you think we as people are doing as far as that goes as of right now? I think we have a lot of work to do from a policy perspective and from a personal perspective. So Mm -hmm. this year, the ADA turned 30 years old which is always a very exciting thing to get to remind people. So even though people think, oh yeah, businesses still have, are getting used to adjusting to being compliant. Y'all, the ADA is older than me. (laughs) And I think personally, we're still learning how to interact with people who are different than we are. We're still learning that what is the right thing to say? What are we supposed to do? What does meaningful inclusion look like? I want to learn more. I mean, I know the story, but I want you to share with the listeners or viewers more about you, your upbringing, and really what, how you got to where you are now. My parents found out I was autistic when I was three years old and got a lot of support from our friends at CARD. That definitely came full circle because I eventually did go to University of Miami for law school. I serve on the board at CARD, full disclosure. I worked very closely with all the folks there. So it definitely was full circle in that regard. But my parents didn't tell me I was autistic until I was nine. And mm-hmm. at the time I was absolutely obsessed with Harry Potter. So when I got sat down for the talk, my mom was like, you have magical powers, just like Harry Potter. And of course, being nine years old, I'm going to buy it. Like, I have no reason to believe there's no magic in me. Like, that sounds like the coolest thing in the world, right? And she explains that, like Harry, I was different from the people that I grew up around, but that wasn't a bad thing. Having that to relate to taught me that different wasn't a bad thing. It's just different and different could be extraordinary. So having that kind of understanding made me feel very self-confident. I didn't think I was the weird kid. And a lot of autistic people that I know will tell me, oh my God, I spent my whole life thinking I was weird and now I know why. And I'm like, I just thought everyone else was weird for not wanting to hang out with me. I thought I was like the (laughs) coolest person around. So I had that very accepting framework growing up. I didn't realize it until I realized that people were excluding me because they didn't know what to do. Or they would make an offhand comment. Like when I was at, in high school, I remember going to the college fair and collecting all the brochures from all these big fancy schools, being really excited about going to college when I grew up, like like everybody else in my high school was. And some girl, knowing that I was autistic because I told my class the year before, it kind of got outed, long story short. And she tells me, Haley, you don't have to worry about this. Colleges love that stuff, that disability stuff. You could have been born a vegetable. You're going to get in wherever you want. And I just felt very taken aback because I know that I was probably working twice as hard in some respects to be on equal footing as my peers. And I was taking the same classes. I took the same SATs. I still took AP classes. I did all the same stuff. I had extracurriculars. I served on the student newspaper. I did all of the right things, so to speak. And I'm like, you're trying to reduce the fact that I'm working just as hard as you to the fact that, oh, someone's gonna take pity on you someday. The more time that I've learned and the more time that I've spent in disability rights spaces, the more I realized how absolutely hurtful that was. I felt it was offensive at 15, but seeing it 11 years later, I'm like, 
that's offensive for more reasons than I can count. Mm -hmm. And I also don't want somebody's pity. I make it very clear. I'm like, don't feel bad for me. I just see it as my brain works a little bit differently. Some things are really hard for me and some things are really easy for me. And that's how it is for most people. Right. What are some of those things that are really hard for you? So I'm one of those people that is very disorganized and I'm trying to work on that a little bit more. So I'm one of, I need routine. And obviously with the pandemic, it's been kind of hard to have that. I also struggle a lot with some of like those, like taking care of myself skills, sometimes starting and stopping things. Cause I get really excited about things that I love to do. And then I'm like, wait, you got to stop. Mm-hmm. Things like that. And, and I'm also like sensory things too. What does that mean? So I'm one of those people that gets kind of overloaded. Sometimes I like super loud places, super crowded places. And it's that for me, I just feel it on overdrive. And then it's like, it just becomes really exhausting. Mm -hmm. The way that I usually try to describe it is imagine being in like Walmart or Target and you're in the electronics aisle and all the TVs are on and they're all on different channels and the volume is on on every single one of them. And I'm going to tell you, just focus on one, just one. And you're probably going to feel kind of overwhelmed and kind of exhausted and think it's really hard. Yeah. But try having that feeling everywhere you go. No, I mean, those are great examples to help kind of put that in perspective to help others mm -hmm. understand that. So mm -hmm. I want to go back a little bit because you you mentioned about in high school, um, mm -hmm. some of your peers excluding you. Um, mm -hmm. Why do you think they did? Um was it because they knew you were autistic or was it because that they saw certain things? Like what, what was the reason that you think, I think they it's started a little bit of, I honestly think it's a little bit of everything. And what I've noticed, and I see this a lot more in my adult life is something that I like to call benevolent ableism. So it's a form of stereotypes and prejudices, but they're well-intended. When I was in high school, a group of girls for some, one of our friend groups, like 16th birthday party, they were all going to go to Disney world together. And the whole group got invited except for me. And I didn't understand why, because all these girls clearly like to hang out with me. They liked me. The birthday girl was someone who would say I was one of her closest friends. And what happened was, is that they didn't feel comfortable or they were afraid that it might be too much for me as a sensory thing. So what would happen, people would go, oh, we think it might be too overwhelming. We didn't want to do that. It might be too much for her. Mm. And they frame that exclusion as they're looking out for you. And it happens more often than not, even in my adult life is, oh, you guys were having a party. You guys are going out to dinner. Why didn't you invite me? Oh, we didn't think you would like the food. We didn't think you'd want to go. And at the same time, I know it's well-intentioned, but I can make those decisions myself. Mm -hmm. Just like you made that decision to go to University of Miami Law School, to pursue law. So walk me through that. What was it like going to law school, um, becoming an attorney, and really everything that kind of snowballed and happened after that? I am very grateful that I went to law school. And I think right now, because I spend a lot of time reflecting on it, I realize how many ways that law school could be better and more inclusive just as a system, not just UM. That you spend a lot of time because you realize that your brain works differently and not the same way that you're being told to always work. You think maybe I'm just not cut out for this. Maybe I'm just stupid and lazy. Maybe I just don't get it. And that's not the case at all. And that's something that I always like to tell students and prospective law students. like you're going to feel defeated at some point and that's okay. That happens to everybody in this, but you're going to feel it especially because you know that you had something else to overcome and other barriers in your way. But I really did enjoy the challenge of law school. I got very involved. I went to UM on a full scholarship. I knew that I deserved to be there and I wanted to make my mark. 
So I was very motivated. I was very excited about it. I was doing things a little outside of the box. I was writing for HuffPost during my first year of school. I was just doing other things. When I graduated, I ended up taking a position doing healthcare and international law. It was very cool. I got to basically fight terrorists and go after their money. So that was really, really cool. And it sounded really interesting to tell people at cocktail parties. But <laughs> I, And I learned a lot, but I also realized that what I enjoyed doing most was educating people and empowering them. So that's the thing with like litigation is that you're basically taking a side and you're, you're fighting for someone and that's wonderful. And I really respect and love that. But so many times these people could just, you could sit them down and hopefully empower them to, you know, agree on something. And that's not what litigation is about. Right. So you mentioned disability rights that that was, was that something you always knew you wanted to pursue? No. I feel like disability rights in general, I didn't really discover as a movement or anything like that until sometime in college and slightly after is, and even now I still find myself learning a lot about disability history and disability culture is there's just so much out there. And you realize that people with disabilities have always been so resilient, such fighters, such activists mm. yeah. that if you want to learn a little bit more about even just the history, I highly recommend watching Crip Camp on Netflix, that it's one of those movies that explains like about a summer camp in the 70s where a bunch of disabled teens would go they just got to be regular teenagers they'd all hang out with each other they'd complain about their parents they would you know start dating one another like very normal teenager stuff when people didn't think they were capable of that mm -hmm. and eventually they're the folks who led the disability rights movement you get really excited realizing that not only did that happen but that fight is still continuing you graduate from UM Law School, and at this mm -hmm. point, you know you're going to pursue some sort of disability rights. You mentioned you uh, Which ended Which is not up, what I did. In my is, was not what you job. did. Not so, what I did in my first full-time job. And yes. Dive into what you did in your first full-time job. I know you touched on it, but... And then I, the media storm that followed The media that. storm came. I took my job in... October, like I started like right after like the bar exam and all that stuff. And then I got sworn into the bar. Like I found out I passed that everything was clear. Everything was good to go that January. So my swear in ceremony, I was like really excited because I'm like, yeah, I did it. Everything is going to be put to bed. I get to say I'm an attorney, like for real, for real. And we had the whole firm came and my family came and we went to the courthouse and my boss had a reporter there because it was a cool story, like autism, lawyer, all that stuff. And I didn't think anything of it. And then eventually the Sun Sentinel did something like a week or two later after like the legal magazine did. And I was at an event with my mom because one of the organizations up in Boca was honoring me at the gala. And I checked my phone and I'm like, mom, something just happened. And she's like, what do you mean something just happened? I'm like, the story from the Sun Sentinel got picked up by the Associated Press. And all of a sudden, the next day, it was President's Day weekend. Because that Monday, I was getting calls, emails, and media requests up to, like, the cows come home. And I had to call my boss with my dad and be like, uh, something happened. <laughs> I, and my dad's like, she's not coming in. We have media outlets basically knocking down our door, and she's safer at home. <laughs> so I ended up taking a couple of weeks just to go through it all and to do all that stuff because it was just such a once in a lifetime experience and it was just so wild because I have been talking about autism and disability since I was 13 years old and getting to do it on a greater scale and bring real awareness to the conversations that need to be had and even introducing neurodiversity this idea that 
we all have different brains and that's to be accepted and respected. Like bringing that to the forefront was so important and so meaningful to me. And I'm glad that for a lot of people, it's the first time they've had that education and understanding. So you spent the next three weeks pretty much responding to Mm -hmm. media requests. So yeah, I know you were on the Today Show, Mm -hmm. Washington Post, like what where are some of the other? I don't even know who to name (laughs) first, but I think the coolest thing for me is at some point towards the end of it, I decided to reclaim the narrative. So often the story about me is once she was nonverbal and now she's a lawyer. And I feel like that doesn't tell the whole story. That doesn't tell you what barriers that I've faced. It doesn't tell you what kinds of stuff that autistic people are still fighting for. It doesn't tell you who I am as a person. It tells you a version of me that says, if she can do it, you can do it too. And it's like, that's not the, the narrative that I'm about. That's, I want people to think critically. I want people to feel inspired to do something. So I'm really grateful that I had the platform and I did get to get written up in different places. And I did try to bring that understanding as best I can in a way that made sense to as many people as possible. So you reclaim the story. What is that Mm -hmm. story that you're continuing to tell now? The stories that I like to tell, I told stories for like, like when I told the story for HuffPost, I talked about what it was like opening that conversation about neurodiversity at work. When I told a story for Bustle, for instance, I talked about here are the different stereotypes that disabled women and female attorneys face every single day about ge- and talking about my story in relation to gender bias and also just disability bias and just how those two things intersect and what people see and what they get are not always the same thing. I also love to talk about employment issues because I was in a full-time job and so often the focus is pretty rare like people are like well so many autistic people are unemployed and I'm like I'm very blessed to be employed I have a great job I love that I get to practice law but how can I basically use this platform to bring awareness to the fact a lot of folks like me aren't so fortunate or aren't given those opportunities how do we make sure to change that thinking that you want to give people opportunities whether or not they are attorneys or they did have the same background that I did how do we make sure that People are even getting in the door and they're not just being glossed over because they're not making eye contact at an interview. What is the first step to overcoming that hurdle? Is it education to the employer or what do you think? I think a lot of employer education is necessary. So what seems to happen is at all steps of hiring, there's disability bias. Think about the essential functions of a job. Like when you read a job description, they have all sorts of stuff they expect you to do. And a lot of times in there, even if it's not quite related to the job, they'll mention you have to have the ability to lift like like 20 pounds. And that automatically excludes a whole subset of people, even if the job is, I don't know, answering the phone. One of my friends is a law librarian, and we talked about this before, and he's like, you know, they're not hiring like law librarians to lift 20 pounds. They're hiring us for our brains and our analytical skills and all of these other things. He's like, if I needed help lifting 20 pounds, I'd just get a student assistant to do it. Right. And I was like, exactly. That's the point. But that's going to force people to self-select out of even applying in the first place. And then they'll go, why do we have no people with disabilities here? Mm. And with the eye contact thing, the problem is a lot of people register something like that. It's just a sign of trustworthiness or a sign of attention. And that's kind of where this cultural gap and cultural confidence comes in. And it's something that I'm actually researching a little bit more in depth for my book so that people know how to at least lawyers know how to communicate better with people who are autistic or otherwise neurodivergent. So what seems to happen is they look at it as trustworthiness. If you look away, 
you're probably like lying to them. The truth is, sometimes it's just uncomfortable to look somebody in the eye. It just is for whatever the reason it might feel physically uncomfortable. It might mean that all of your attention is suddenly shifted on looking at that person rather than actually, you know, paying attention to what they're saying. So it's kind of reframing how we see these things and what we, why are they so important to us in the first place? Like, why is it so important that we control certain body language? Is it social pressure? Is it that we think it's a certain measure of intelligence or a certain measure of trustworthiness or a certain measure of dedication? Like, why do we feel this way? And how do people who don't do those things perceive those things at the same time? So there's kind of this double-sided version of what is really going on. From my side, at least, it just sounds like a lot of understanding and education is needed mm-hmm. because it's like, listen, if you tell me that and I know that, then I understand, you know? So I want to talk a little bit about your book. I'm so excited. That you are so excited and feverishly working on. I know you have a deadline <laughs> coming up. So tell me, what is the book, the name of the book, and what it's about? So currently, this book is tentatively, I'm hoping this is the final title still, but it's Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers. So the goal of Great Minds Think Differently right now is to teach lawyers about neurodiversity and that how that understanding can make sure that we do better at including and hiring people who are different. So not just autism. I want to make it clear this is not just an autism book. It is autism, ADHD, learning disabilities, mental health. Neurodiversity is everybody. It's just those are different types of neurodivergence. So people who don't think in out, who think outside the box, who are a little bit outside the norm. And also taking that further about what's what does disclosure look like? What should you be doing? And finally going an inching closer towards that idea of how can we do better with this neurodiversity understanding so we could represent clients better and make better public policy and advocacy decisions as well. Why in the book did you decide to speak specifically to lawyers? I decided on lawyers because we tend to be the worst about (laughs) diversity and inclusion. So when you look at numbers of lawyers with disabilities, less than 1% of lawyers will identify as having a disability when in reality, like we talked about earlier, it's probably closer to 25% of the population. And when you see the mental health studies, mental health in particular and ADHD affect lawyers disproportionately more than the general population. Lawyers are change makers. They've always been that way. And our profession just is very slow to adopt different policies and procedures and adapt to different people and styles. So even just when you look at how many women are in the law. So for the first time, probably about in the last couple of years, we had equal rates or more women than men entering law school. That that just is a new thing. But women leave firms at higher rates. There are fewer partners of color in big firms. That when you look at diversity and inclusion within the practice of law, it tells a very different story and kind of starting to address that head on. And again, like we started talking about beforehand, disability really does get left out of diversity and inclusion. It just always does and it intersects with every single group. And it's the only marginalized minority group that you can join at any point in your life. Mm. I felt that when you said that. Um, Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, why is that such an important point to bring up for you? I bring that up because people think disability is this very one dimensional othering thing that they think it's this like personal tragedy thing that you might be born with or that they try to separate their identities from disability. So if you've noticed people who might have mental health struggles will not say they're disabled or that veterans that 
are disabled vets with PTSD will make it very clear they're vets, they're not disabled vets. Or There's a lot of stigma around disability. Even people who have cancer diagnoses or other things, or they eventually develop Alzheimer's or dementia, like there's a big stigma around disability that people somehow other these things. All of these forms of disability, they don't just start when you're born. It's not that you were just born blind or deaf. You can acquire that. You can end up paralyzed from an accident. And a lot of people who end up in the disability and inclusion space are people who acquire disability later in life because they didn't realize it was an issue until it happened to them. So this is a big question, but what do you think are some of the steps we need to take to be more inclusive um, of those with disabilities? I think that's a really big question to unpack. <laughs> yeah. and. I think one of the first things that I noticed is that, is that there seems to be and there shouldn't be a disability hierarchy. Some types of disability, I guess, are seen as more desirable or more palatable than others that by the community, like not people like there's a term that goes around called ugly disabled and people don't want to see quote unquote ugly disabled. So people with like facial disfigurement, people who might just like look different, like when you see those TikTok challenges about people who are disabled, who like have facial like disfigurement and whatnot, like look how ugly they are and things like that, that they're see that they're not the people that they want to see at the forefront of these conversations. And they're the ones who are obviously impacted that people want to see just like a regular person in a wheelchair. Or they want to see just something that they don't notice. They want to experience your disability mildly to put it nicely. And people that really end up at the bottom of that, other than people that are quote unquote, like ugly disabled are people with intellectual disabilities that they're seen as pitiful, they're not treated like real adults. So often when I talk about adults with intellectual disabilities, I'm like, please remember they're adults. Don't treat them like they're five because they're not. Just because they might need things broken down differently, that doesn't mean that they can't understand adult things or that they're not capable of doing adult things. There's so many little things that you could do that show that you are trying to be welcoming and accommodating that don't really require that much effort. So. I'm still learning how to do some of these things too. And that's okay because disabilities are really wide range of conditions and experiences. And it also affects every group across socioeconomic status, race, country, what gender, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Do you think that makes so, the challenge that much greater because there is such a wide range? I think so, especially because every community handles disability differently is that some cultures have more shame around it, that it's scarier to be out if it, if it intersects with race. You have to see disability issues as an intersectional issue, mm -hmm. but it isn't just disabled people that are white. It isn't just disabled people who have money. It isn't just professional disabled people like me that are attorneys that should be somehow leading this conversation. It should be so much greater because the issues that affect people with disabilities affect people across all issues, all places in the lifespan all parts of the world that it doesn't matter if you're a newborn or you are basically at the end of your life that these issues affect you and disability issues affect every piece of policy law and place that we go is there anything else that would be helpful as far as just taking one small step forward i always tell people don't be afraid to ask questions because i know that it's really messy if you don't understand like the language of disability, what you can and can't do, that just treat us like people. I always say the first time I disclose, the best answer in reaction that I could get is so what? Mm -hmm. Like the best answer I get is like, I don't care. Like, why should I care? Great, you shouldn't. You shouldn't care. You shouldn't treat me differently. You shouldn't treat talk to me like I'm five. You shouldn't 
assume that I don't understand things or can't do things, great. If you don't care, wonderful. Best reaction I could hope for. But it's okay to ask questions yeah. like, do you feel comfortable with this? Or how, like, even with accommodations at work, if I love when it's a more informal conversation and we lead that way, how can we help you do a better job? Or how can we help you feel less distracted? Or how can we make sure that you're able to do what you need to do rather than just doing an accommodation, like looking at it like it's a bad thing? Mm-hmm. I love that you said, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions because I think sometimes people feel uncomfortable about the conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So they don't want to ask. Just And boundaries, like I know for me, I will let you know if you're violating my boundaries. Yeah. And I know that's always where I think questions get funky. I'm like, you can ask questions. If it, you if you're afraid of offending me or that you'll overstep a boundary, I will let you know. And I will call you in and gently tell you that that makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm not going to answer that. Let's steer this towards something else. Like I will very much tell you I don't feel comfortable answering a question. Right. And at least asking questions, getting answers help open the lines of communication. Everybody messes and understanding. up. Right. You're going to mess up. Like it's fact. I know on a lot of social issues that I'm not as well versed in, I will mess up. And the right person will be patient and take the time to let me know that I messed up and teach me and let me know how I could do better. Mm-hmm. That we can hold each other accountable and also make room to keep growing. I love this. I feel like I could talk to you all day. It's always so good me catching too. up with you. Tell everyone how they can learn more about you, find you and all that good stuff. So I am very online. <laughs> You can find me at HaleyMoss.net or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HaleyMossArt. Awesome. I'll make sure to link to all of that below in the show notes. Haley, this has been awesome. Are there any last thoughts that you have that you wanted to add before we go? I think we addressed a lot. And of course, <laughs> because both of, both of us are canes. Go canes. Oh, I can't believe I didn't say that in the beginning. Go, go <laughs> there canes. you go. Go canes. <laughs> Anyone who watches this podcast knows that I always have a lot of canes on here and I always show love to my canes. So <laughs> sorry I didn't mention that in the beginning. Go canes. And Haley, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. I learned so much from Haley in that episode. And I feel like we just barely scratched the surface with all that she's learned her research, the things that she's working on. We have, as she mentioned, so far to go when it comes to diversity and inclusion for those with disabilities. And it's an important conversation that I think we should continue to have. So make sure you find all of her information below in the show notes. She's provided some great resources as well. So connect with her, also connect with me. I'm on LinkedIn. Hit subscribe on YouTube. And I'd also love to hear what you think of this show. Leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think. It helps me improve the show and give you more of what you like. So I hope to see you back next week. And until then, stay happy, stay healthy.